Our first scripture today comes from the Psalms. Hear now God's word. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. Our second scripture comes from the book of Matthew as we continue our series, The Way. And when, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. We started a series at the beginning of Lent called The Way, and the idea is that the early followers of Jesus used to call themselves the people or the followers of the way. And their intention, what they were saying when they said that, was that they were following the way of who? Jesus, right. Thanks for at least one person following along with me for the weeks. That's why I do a recap each week, and then by the end of the series, the, my last sermon is just written for me. It's just a recap of all the other weeks, right? So, <clears throat> but we've been following along, and we see that, that the people stopped calling themselves the followers of the way at some point. They kind of got coined the phrase Christians, which essentially meant little Christs, or kind of the followers of Christ. And so they, that word began to encapsulate the idea that they followed in the way of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. And so we're looking at this idea, if we are to be Christians, then we are people of the way too. We are people who follow the way of Jesus. So we've been looking at Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry over the last three weeks, and we've got three more weeks to go before Holy Week. And we're going to be looking at more about what Jesus's life and ministry teaches us as we're his people and who we're supposed to be in this world. The first week, we looked looked at his baptism and his temptation, which was the official start, beginning of his public ministry when he was about 30 years old. And it was a really weird way for him to start. The fact that he was going to be baptized, it wasn't like baptism we do today. The baptism that John was doing in the wilderness was a baptism of repentance. This idea that your heart would be changed, would be transformed. You would have a, a, a 
kind of a transplant of your way of thinking, and you would make a decision to go a different way, to kind of turn around and go the opposite direction you were going before. And so people were going out recognizing that they weren't living the life God wanted them to live, and they would make a commitment to follow more closely after the one true living God of Israel. And yet Jesus, we see throughout his ministry over and over again that he was perfect. So what was he repenting of? We don't know. He wasn't repenting of anything of his own. The best guess that we can give is that he was repenting on behalf of all of humanity. Even those who weren't choosing for themselves to repent, but that he was so identifying with the sinful nature of humanity in his perfection that he even took on the act of repenting on our behalf. An amazing and amazing thought. And then we see that God made a huge mistake in his marketing. Uh, he didn't do enough research and he immediately stopped Jesus' ministry. So there's this great grandiose display. The Father speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down. Jesus is baptized. And yet, after that, he disappears into the wilderness by himself for 40 days. Right? How many of people do a product launch and then you never hear from them again for the next 40 days? No, you get like emails every hour in your email if they're a product launch, right? If you're signed up for their email list. They want to communicate over and over and over again. And yet God just disappears into the desert. And yet we saw that this was a very, uh, an extension of his baptism. It's a, it was a very important part of Jesus' preparation for his ministry because it was in more of him identifying with humanity. And not just the people of Israel, but he was tempted in every way that is common for all of us to be tempted. And we kind of get a summary of his temptation in three specific interactions with the devil. But in reality, he was being tempted the whole time for 40 days. And so he was being tempted by whatever forces were around him to sin as all of humanity has done. And yet Jesus doesn't do it. He rebukes the temptations. He chooses instead faithfulness to God. And so this whole beginning of his ministry is to show that Jesus is identifying with all of humanity, not just the Jewish people. And then we see the next week when we looked at his healing ministry, we looked at a particular set of stories that were one story inside of another, where Jesus is asked to be, come to a synagogue leader's house, a ruler, somebody who would have been respected in the public eye, then in heal a daughter that had been sick and who had died to raise her back to life. And so the synagogue ruler believed in Jesus' power, or maybe he was so desperate it caused him to have hope in what Jesus might be able to do since he had heard of all this stuff. So he calls Jesus, and as Jesus is going, a woman who's been bleeding for like 12 years comes and touches just the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And then the story's not over. He continues his journey to the synagogue leader's house, and he actually raises this little girl back to life. And so this, this idea in this, these stories is that he goes to somebody who is rich probably or at least upper middle class and who has prominence and respect in the public eye and he also heals somebody who's a castaway, somebody who would have been seen as unclean, who probably couldn't work and keep an income, who had to live on the kindness of other people and wasn't allowed to integrate into the rest of society because of her unclean nature and this bleeding disease that she had. And so this, there's this dichotomy where Jesus is here and healing anybody who needs healing. Anybody who comes to him in faith. It doesn't matter. We tend to think of in today's mind that Jesus didn't like the rich. But he was ministering to someone with prominence and he was ministering to an outcast at the same time. And then last week we saw that the central message of Jesus' ministry and his teaching was what? What was it last week? Let's see if anybody else was paying attention. 
What was the central message? Nobody was paying attention, I guess. The kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. I mean, I barely remember. I'm not blaming you guys. I, I had to look back to remember what I preached on last week, so don't worry about it. I forget too. The kingdom of God is the central message of Jesus's ministry, okay? What that meant is that God was ushering his kingdom, his will on earth in a new way that he hadn't done before in Jesus Christ. By him coming in the flesh, he was bringing the kingdom of God to the earth in a way that he hadn't done before, and he was in breaking the kingdom onto earth in the middle of time, something that the Jews expected to happen at the end of time when all the human of humanity would be raised from the dead and would be judged by God, right? And so they had this conception of that, but Jesus is actually the beginning of it in the middle of time. And so his message is that the kingdom of God is coming and that God's kingdom is for all humanity. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of hope and is a kingdom of promise and a kingdom of purpose. And he gives us new life in following after his will. And so this is the message of Jesus' ministry. This is the hope that he brings us. Now this week, we're looking at this weird story about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Sea of Galilee just because I was, not, I was there not too long ago. Many of you know I went to Israel in January and we're planning a trip for the whole church for next January. Uh, but I went and was in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I took this picture off of the side of the boat when I was in there. And it was amazing to me because the Sea of Galilee, in my mind, had always had a, a, a bit of kind of like mystery and majesty to it because it's called a what? A sea, right? So when I picture the sea, I'm thinking in my mind that it's this huge lake. And now a huge lake that I've spent a lot of time on in my life coming from Northern California was Lake Tahoe. And so I kind of envisioned it to be kind of like Lake Tahoe or maybe even bigger. And yet when I got out on this boat in the middle of the sea, I was like, this thing is tiny. Why did they ever call this thing a sea? This is ridiculous. This is not a sea. But it was a beautiful place, and it was a wonderful place to be. Uh, it was a little hazy we were there, when we were there, but you can see that even in the haze, you could see right across to the other side, and it doesn't look like it's that far. That's because it's only really seven miles wide, maybe eight at most at its widest point, and it's only about 13 miles long. That means that it's about 40,000 acres as a whole, the surface of the water, and it's a fairly shallow lake. It's only about 80 feet deep on average, and the deepest part is actually 150 feet right in the channel where the river flowed through uh, originally that the lake you know, was made out of. But in general, it's a pretty shallow lake for how big of a lake it is. I wanted to give you a little bit of a comparison because when I was there and I was on this lake, the idea of a raging storm that I would be afraid of was like... That's stupid. This is a tiny little lake. How could there possibly be a raging storm? And in fact, I've been in Tahoe so many times where there had been storms and things that I had never been in on the water in Tahoe where I was afraid for my life. And I thought, how in the world could there have been a storm here that would actually make you afraid for your life? And so I started asking people. And what I learned, and this is a picture that compares Lake Tahoe to the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tahoe is about, on average, 1,000 feet deep. On average, 
1,000 feet deep. The deepest part of Lake Tahoe is about 1,700 feet deep. Okay, so this is an incredibly deep lake, but it is bigger. It's about 13 miles wide, and it's about 22 miles long, and it's about 122,000 acres as its surface area. So Lake Tahoe is a lot bigger than Lake of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. So why in the world would there be bigger storms on the Sea of Galilee than on Lake Tahoe? Well, one of the people described to me and said, now imagine you had a big, deep bowl, Chris, and you blew across the surface of the bowl. What would you see on that surface? Maybe some rippling, some effect of me blowing, right? But nothing crazy, correct? Now imagine a plate that you put water in, less deep, blow across the surface of that. What happens? The water goes off the edge, right? It goes crazy. It goes nuts because there's not the depth to keep it still and calm. And so because of the shallowness and because of its uh, nature being in the middle of a bunch of mountains and also in the middle of the desert, what would happen is that as the evening began to cool down in the desert in the area right around the lake began to equalize in pressure, the the climate around there would actually shift and begin to flow over the mountains and down into the basin of the sea. And you would get winds of upwards of 140, 150 miles an hour blowing across this shallow surface of water. And it would create incredible storms with swells upwards of 15 to 20 feet tall, and imagine being on a little fishing boat in the middle of those kind of storms. It'd be quite insane, right, Bob? Have you been on a few of those? Once. Once. Was it scary? It was very scary. Um, most of the time, Bob avoids windy days on Lake Erie, and so uh, it's, it's a thing. Bo boaters don't go out in the wind, right? And so if you were ever caught in a storm, it can be a scary thing to be a part of. Now, to give you guys, you're sitting there thinking, we're not from California, Chris. Why are you talking about California things? Well, this is Lake St. Clair in comparison to Lake, the Sea of Galilee, so you can see the difference there. Lake St. Clair is about 24 miles wide by 26 miles at its longest points. Um, Lake St. Clair is about uh, 250,000 square feet or something like or 250,000 acres or something like that, somewhere around there. But Lake St. Clair, did you know this? On average is only 11 feet deep. The deepest place in Lake St. Clair, and this is only because the Army Corps of Engineers dredge it for the channel for all the shipping lanes, is only 27 feet deep. So Lake St. Clair, if there were mountains around it, would have the same kind of storms that the Sea of Galilee would have because it's so shallow. It's a little bit more placid because it just doesn't have that much wind that comes and storms that come through there that blow on the surface as much like at the Sea of Galilee. But what an incredible experience to be able to see this, to feel this, and to understand kind of the dimensions there, to feel the water. Now, there was a drought there somewhere in the 80s, and a guy who was coming up to the shore to fish was wading through the mud, and he saw something sticking out of the mud. And he immediately went up to it to touch it, and his finger kind of went through it, and he could tell that it was made of wood, but it looked like it was a pretty big object. So he, he immediately contacted a local museum, and he said, I think you need to have your people come out here. 
And they came out and they began to try and dig around it and find, find out what it was. And it turned out to be a boat, a fishing boat from about the time that Jesus was alive and was on the Sea of Galilee. And so this boat they have now in a museum, they actually had to dig around and then pour foam uh, all around it so that it would actually secure it and keep it from breaking apart. Then they brought it into a special facility where they bathed it in all these chemicals to begin to dry it out and get all the moisture out of it and to begin to firm up the wood again. And then they bathed it in wax and they, they sealed it and protected it and then they put it back together in this display. So you can see that's not a huge boat, right? That's a pretty small boat. And there's 12 guys in that boat. Where did Jesus have the room to lay down is my thought. Like, <laughs> he must have been a small dude that like really didn't mind sleeping anywhere. Like, I, I would have a hard time laying in that thing. Uh, this boat was found, it probably was shipwrecked much in a storm, much like the storm that Jesus calmed because it was so common there. They found there was like, I think, over 16 different types of wood. And so over the years, they would patch it and whatever wood they had available, they would patch it. So this was a boat that, that was passed down probably generation after generation, was a part of a fishing family like Peter's like James and John, and they were using it generation after generation. So imagine the bad day these guys had when their ship sunk into the bottom, right? Their whole livelihood, a boat that had been passed down maybe three or four generations, was now gone and at the bottom of the sea, and they couldn't do anything about it. But it was a great blessing for us because it got preserved, and we were able then to see what a boat from Jesus' time would have looked like. This is the kind of boat that he would have been in. The crazy thing about this story, the crazy thing about this story is that if you go back in Jewish thinking, if you look back at the Old Testament, if you begin to understand the context of the Jewish people, you begin to understand how amazing this act of Jesus is. Right? We've grown up with this story. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus walked on water and Jesus he calmed the waves, whatever, blah, 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 blah. We just kind of gloss over it. But for the people of Israel, for Jesus to have command over the water was something significant. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of our scriptures, that the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered over the face of the deep. Now, the Hebrew words here are fun to say, so I'm going to have you guys say it with me. The formless and void is tohu wavohu. So let's say that, tohu wavohu. And it was like kind of almost a poetic way of saying that there was chaos, that there was chaos that was going on. And where was this chaos? In the sea. Over the water. Over the water, the deep. Right? And so in the mindset of a Near Eastern culture, there's nothing more dangerous and more chaotic and more evil-inducing than the deep, the sea, the water. Okay? And so in their minds, there was nothing worse than just open water. They were not a seafaring people in general. And their whole, a lot of the cultures around them had stories about the creation of the world being formed out of this chaotic ocean. And there is, in, in the Babylonian creation story, a god, Tiamat, who is the goddess of the waters and the sea. And she was slain by Marduk, another god, the god of light. And, and she was cut in half and her head was made to be the earth and then her body was made to be the rest of the heavens. And so this idea that the chaos was controlled, was, was managed by the, the god Marduk is kind of a little bit 
uh, for kind of shadowed a little bit here in the Genesis passage because look, while the wind was of, of God came and swept over the face of the waters. And then God begins to create and he makes order out of the chaos. And so this is the idea that God is the one and the only one who can order chaos, who can bring peace amidst the storms and amidst the water. And this story and this kind of thinking goes all the way into the New Testament because when they see in a few chapters from now Jesus walking on the sea, the first thought process they have isn't what? There's a person on the sea. They think it's a ghost. Have you ever wondered why they thought a ghost was on the sea? Like if you were out on Lake Erie fishing, Bob, and you saw some weird figure there, would you immediately think, hmm, a ghost? Probably not, right? Because it's not cultural for us to have that thought. But for them, the ghosts hovered over the sea because the sea was the place of death. The sea was the place of chaos, of out of control, of evil, right? So to see something on the sea, they naturally would have gravitated towards some kind of spiritual evil. But if you look back into the Psalms and many of the prophets, you see things like this. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as, might, who is as mighty as you, O Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. This is a concept of power, of sovereignty, of control. When you can control the chaos of the sea, you show power that no one else should be able to have, only God. It keeps going. Let's look at another passage. Or who shut, this is God talking to Job at the, end of, um, at the end of the book of Job. Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. It is God and God only and the God of Israel who controls the storms. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 65. A couple more. Isaiah 51, 15. For I am the Lord your God who stirs up the, the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And again, another psalm. If it'll happen. Oh no, I didn't get another one. Sorry. It is God who controls the seas. It is only the living God of Israel who has the ability to control the seas, to control the waves, to control the wind. So even though these disciples have been with Jesus, They've been with him in Capernaum right before this, before they set out onto the waters. The reason why Jesus is so tired is why? Because he's spent all day long teaching and ministering and healing, miraculously, hundreds of people in Capernaum. And to get away from the crowds, to get a little bit of a break, he goes out in a boat with the disciples and he falls asleep because he's exhausted from all this work he's been doing. Why are the disciples surprised that he can 
control the wind and the waves. If you and I saw somebody healing and doing miracles and powers of spiritual might that we've never seen before, we wouldn't be surprised that they can also control the waves. We'd be like, oh, duh, that makes sense, right? But for them, those are two separate things. Lots of people went around in the lands and healed or did other miracles like Jesus was doing. But no one, no one but God can control the wind and the waves. So when they see Jesus standing in defiance of natural forces that were beyond anybody else's control and say, peace, and everything becomes calm, it's sealed in their heart when they ask this question, who is this? Who is this? that can even command the winds and the waves. They immediately began to realize this is no miracle worker. This is no normal teacher. This is someone of immense power who can do things no one else is supposed to be able to do but God himself. They begin to believe in him. They begin to trust in him. So much so that just a few chapters later, when Jesus is walking on a windy and rainy, stormy evening, and they see him out on the sea, Peter has the gall to say what? Call me to you and I'll step out on the sea with you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter, for a few faltering steps, does the impossible. And walks on the sea with Jesus. For us, in our lives, what do we learn from this? What do we take from this? Well, some of us have been in physical storms. But most of us, I would say probably all of us, have been in metaphorical storms. Times of life that the ground beneath us seems to be shifting so much, we're afraid we're going to be swallowed up and we're going to drown underneath the waves. And the God who we serve, the Jesus who we proclaim, who we have hope in and who we have faith in, is shown to have power over the wind and the waves. So why wouldn't he also have power over the stormy times of your life? Why wouldn't he also be there with you in the midst of your own storm? And if that's true, then he also calls you to be a people of his presence in the midst of the shifting and stormy darkness of life that surrounds all of us in this sinful world. He calls us as Christians to be his calming, his hopeful, his promising and healing people. To all those who are getting rocked to and fro by the waves and afraid that they too are going to drown. Are we ready to be the people of that way? The people who would be the calmers of the storm in faith in Jesus Christ in all the experiences of our life with those who God has called us to minister to. Amen. 
you're going through storms in your own life, we just finished a series uh, looking at suffering, and I would encourage you this week, if you're still struggling, go back, listen to those sermons. I went back and listened to them, not only mine, but the sermons that were preached by Pastor Jordan Rimmer at First Presbyterian, or at uh, Northminster Presbyterian in Western Pennsylvania. We did the series together, and both the sermons, even my own words, ministered to me in a way I was completely unexpecting. Uh, So go back, listen to those. But in this week, trust in the God that showed he could even control the wildest of winds and waves, and he could bring peace of the storm, and so he could bring peace in your life. Cling to him and know that he loves you and let him lift you out of those storms.